0: and thank you for tuning in today. We're going to be talking about sleep with Dr. Lauren Hale. We'll explore why sleep is important, what happens if you don't get enough and how to improve your sleep. Dr. Hale has been studying sleep and health for two decades. She's a researcher and professor at Stony Brook University and is on the board of directors of the National Sleep Foundation. She also serves on the National Scientific Advisory Board for the Children and Screens Institute and is the founding editor-in-chief of Sleep Health. Dr. Hale is also a member of those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic, which is how she and I initially connected. Personally, I've always been fascinated by sleep and felt that it deserves much more attention than it often gets. I'm really glad that you've set aside some time today to learn about sleep, and I hope that our conversation helps you to take some positive steps in your life. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hale. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure
1: to finally see you on screen. We've been uh, communicating via
0: text for a while or, or Slack. Exactly. It's a lot more fun to see each other face-to-face-ish yeah. ish, than it is via by by a chat. Yep. So I don't actually know the story of how you came to be a sleep researcher. So I'd love to hear um, a bit about your background and your journey into the area of sleep.
1: Okay. So I started my... Career in academia as a demographer, I was I was and remain interested in health patterns, why some people live longer than others. And while I was studying this, really a paper came out in 2002 that was like both short sleep and long sleep are associated with higher mortality. And I was like, what? Well, how can that be? You know, why is it that both ends of the sleep spectrum are bad for health? And then I attended a lecture maybe a few months later about sleep. I mean, I I was obviously already interested in it. And it was by Robert Stickgold, who's a leader in the field of sleep and cognition. And he gives a very dynamic talk. He talks about, uh, you know, sleep and learning while playing Tetris. And he does a lot of really cool experimental studies, totally different from what I do with large data sets looking at, you know, death rates. And he ended his talk after basically convincing everybody in the room that sleep, you know, is hugely important for consolidating memories and learning. You need to sleep after you learn in order to encode it into your brain. And then he ended his talk, you know, I can't remember exactly whether he showed pictures or something, but he said, the thing is, we don't know that much about The demography of sleep. That's how he ended his talk in this very Mm -hmm. casual, not casual. It was like, here we have this problem, but we don't know who's sleeping well or not well. I'm almost positive. He said the demography of sleep. So I was surely the only demographer in training in the room. And I chased him by this time. We were in in an airport in Madison, Wisconsin, and I chased him to the airport terminal. And I was like, Dr. Sickold, I'm going to study the demography of sleep. And he was like, go for it. Nobody else is doing it. And that's probably an overstatement. There are epidemiologists of sleep, although not many. And then, you know, I got on this big question of, is sleep contributing to differential mortality by my first question was race, ethnicity, as well as education. And sure enough, we do find that there are differences in sleep. By social status. That's been about 15 or 20 years. And I have focused my career on making sleep as a public health issue a priority because public health has lots of you know, strands, but sleep is kind of under-recognized as a priority. And I wanted it to get more time in the sun and also to think of it as not just a public health priority, but a
0: social justice issue. So that's how I got into sleep. So why don't we start at the beginning with what do we know and not know about why we sleep and the functions mm-hmm. it serves, because I've heard it said before that you know sleep had better be important because it makes us vulnerable as prey. So it tells you it's got to be serving some really essential function. Totally. You are so right about that. And in
1: some ways it really is a mystery uh, how this vulnerable state evolved that for all animals effectively have some form of sleep and it seems like a totally inefficient use of time from an evolutionary perspective. You're not feeding, you're not reproducing, you're not defending yourself. So, what is it that's going on? Why are we doing it? Well, we don't exactly know the whole reason, but we see lots of benefits of it. So, the improvements in function include cognition, psychological well being, and basically every other organ in the human body leads to kind of better physical health and better mental health through kind of the nightly restorative process of sleep. Some recent science really indicates that the brain is clearing itself of toxins during sleep. So it's like a cleansing period for the brain, but it also has other benefits for other organs, as I said. So a wide range of functions, despite making ourselves vulnerable to the uh, lions and tigers
0: and bears. But is it fair to say we don't fully understand exactly everything that's happening during we sleep when we Absolutely. sleep? Absolutely. We really don't get it all. And if somebody claims to
1: know it all, they probably don't know enough. <laughs> so there's a lot we don't understand, for sure.
0: So I want to move into talking about, you know, getting enough sleep, what that really means and what happens when you're not getting enough. So I'm not sure the best way to approach it, but maybe one way is how do you know if you're not getting enough or what happens when you don't get enough?
1: Well, Every person is different, but there are guidelines and they're age stratified. So for adults, typically seven to nine hours is recommended and and seven is fine. You know, maybe even six and a half is fine, but seven is recommended. For teenagers, eight to 10. And then you have to look at, go to the NSF.org. Full disclosure, I'm on the board of the National Sleep Foundation. But these are widely accepted consensus statements on Sufficient sleep duration. And you can see what age is, how many hours of sleep are expected for each age group. And how can you tell if you are getting enough sleep? I mean, you can tell by how you're feeling in the morning. That's sort of the easiest way. If you're waking up not feeling refreshed, it probably means either you have insufficient sleep, non restorative sleep, low quality sleep. There's something going on where sleep isn't giving you the refresher that you need. And and another way to test kind of just for duration is, do you require an alarm clock to wake up in time for the start of your day or whatever it is you need to do? If you're relying on an alarm clock and would otherwise sleep past it, it's a sign that you're probably not getting enough sleep. You should start going to bed earlier so you can wake up either before the alarm clock or happily with the alarm clock. And whatever you do, you should not try to extend that morning sleep by hitting the snooze button that's not the way to get extra sleep because that low quality interrupted sleep every 7 or 8 minutes waking up and turning it off is an inefficient way to sleep you want to have uninterrupted sleep until your body's ready to wake up so those are some tips you can probably also just sense if somebody's extra cranky i'm thinking of children how was their sleep the night before how was your sleep and you go from there if they were getting sufficiently.
0: I've got to say, with I have fraternal twins and it's really fascinating to see the differences in their sleep needs because they've had the same opportunity and the same, I've attempted to give them the same schedule yep. for all of their lives, but there's one twin who has woken up earlier from every nap and has woken up earlier every morning of her life and in a perkier state than the one who seems to need more sleep. Wow. So I'm really acutely aware of the inter-individual differences in sleep. Yeah. And the way that shows up. And also I think the differences in, I don't know if there's another layer on that, that sort of your readiness to switch from sleep to awake. It's it's, Mm -hmm. my experience. It seems that some people kind of go pretty easily in that transition. I don't know if it reflects the amount of sleep because it's actually the lower sleeper in our case that wakes up perkier than the one who sleeps longer and still seems groggy. Right. That transition is referred to as
1: sleep inertia. If you have a hard time getting out of the sleep state and into the wake state. So it's very interesting about your twins because it's a nice little experimental design you have there. But it is interesting to hear that uh, they are so different and always have been. And there's certainly a genetic component as there usually is in human biology. And then there's a range of other social and psychological factors that we know. If you're really giving them the same routines and the same... Bedtimes and they have the same schedule. You know, I think it probably has to do with personality. One wakes up excited for the day, wants to hop out of bed and go do it, and the other one enjoys or needs more time in bed.
0: That's a really interesting point because I can certainly say, in my experience, it's easier to get out of bed some days more than others, based not only on how much rest I got, but just based on how I'm feeling emotionally and what lies ahead that day. So it's important to bear in mind those other factors but also that there is a genetic component to sleep needs. There is. Yeah. So when you mentioned the alarm clock, you said if you're waking up to an alarm clock, that probably means you're not getting enough because if you would have slept longer. So I don't know anyone who doesn't wake up with an alarm clock. So maybe you can speak to the scope (laughs) of the problem.
1: I haven't had an alarm clock in years. So I don't, actually, I don't even remember the last time I had an alarm clock. Really? No, I don't. I have one and neither does anyone in my family, <laughs> but I have, I wake them up or they wake me up. Yeah, what's your question
0: on that? Right. I, was saying, I was wondering, since this is your area, can you speak to this, the scope of the undersleeping problem in North America and maybe how that's changed over time and the factors that have driven the change? Because it seems like, you know, I've heard the term sleep epidemic or, or undersleep right. epidemic. Like, so
1: in terms of sheer prevalence, poor sleep health is an epidemic you know thirty percent of adults are not getting the sleep they need 50 to seventy percent of teenagers aren't getting the sleep they need that's huge you know if we had you know 50 to 70 percent obesity, you know that's a lot of people not getting the sleep they need for optimal health and well-being. In addition, there are a lot of untreated or undiagnosed sleep disorders including uh, sleep apnea and insomnia being the primary two, but there are other less common ones. So there's a lot of work to be done in spreading the word about sleep health and addressing sleep as a medical priority because it's not really addressed by most primary care doctors because they have so many other needs in such limited time in the office. So there's room for improvement in addressing sleep health of, of the whole population. And has it changed over time? A little bit. It's gone down. A recent study showed that between 2005 and 2018, I think it was about a six minute drop in in sleep duration. So, not huge, but that adds up at the population level. It adds up a lot. There's been an increase of teenagers not getting the sleep they need. In part, at least one study using longitudinal data suggests that 2012 marked a tipping point and that also aligned with kind of the ubiquity of smartphones in the bedroom. Before 2012, teens were not universally bringing their phones to bed. And so we saw increases in the population of teenagers not getting enough sleep around then. And it has stayed a relatively constant. Of course, we've been in a pandemic for the last few years and school from home, work from home changed things in kind of a, a massive way. Now we're back to normal. But 2020 really showed that the role of commuting and getting up early and getting dressed and doing one's hair and makeup add to short sleep duration. (laughs) Because what we found is not just survey data, but Fitbit and other wearable companies showed increases in sleep duration overall during 2020. Even though during that same time, there were increased complaints of insomnia and concern clearly related to all of the social and health uncertainty going on in 2020, social and economic. So insomnia complaints went up, but sleep duration actually increased uh, during 2020,
0: which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I know in in my husband's case, he does a fair amount of business travel and he realized he was sleeping so much better without all that business travel and has really not been thrilled to go back to that.
1: Yep, yep. And there's a big shift now. So many organizations and companies are allowing for more work from home. And ultimately that's beneficial for sleep health. There are other costs associated with that in terms of networking and bonding with collaborators or colleagues, but in terms of sleep health, it's probably a good thing.
0: I'm wondering if you could speak a bit more about the benefits of investing in getting enough sleep, because I'm again, bringing it back to my family's experience, you know, you can see it with your kids sometimes that they're cranky, but there are other things that I don't think. Not everyone necessarily makes the association automatically with sleep and my husband's finding, for example, thinking more clearly or things like that. What are some of the other benefits that maybe when you're trying to sell it to yourself or sell it to your team (laughs) that you can think about that you can gain from that? And even I've also read studies, uh, for example, on food choices and all of those ways. So there are decades of great studies on the impact of
1: sleep on how we think, how we behave and how our body functions. I'll mention a few but first I want to highlight how smart you are to talk about selling it to your customer because in some ways getting people to sleep more it should be obvious that they feel better the next day but it is it does involve a little bit of shaping your your pitch to your audience and for teens one thing I've learned is teens are not that interested in that they make riskier decisions after they're sleep deprived. They don't find that very interesting, but they do like that in my study of Twitter behavior of NBA basketball players that basketball players who were up late tweeting the night before had lower shooting accuracy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, shooting accuracy. Your brain does not work as well when you are up late the night before, and that's something a teen responds to. In terms of uh, dietary choices, there are some really cool and interesting studies on sleep restriction. You choose more caloric food and fattier food if you're sleep deprived. And you know, just from an anecdotal perspective, this makes sense to me. I've never gone down to the refrigerator in the middle of the night and selected celery.
0: That's just not what I do.
1: So, you know, well, I
0: absolutely, I'm the same. If I, <laughs> it's on my super tired day where I'm like, Oh, maybe I will, maybe I'll just grab a cookie to go.
1: Yeah. Cup. You make your choices based on like your cognitive capacity. And if you're feeling needy, you just go that your impulse control or sleepy rather your impulse control is down and you're like cookies. It is And some days you need or want that cookie, but if that's a habitual pattern of not getting the sleep you need and then making poor food choices. And this happens with large survey data. I've done analysis of the ad health data, and we've shown that teens who are habitual short sleepers consume more fast food and eat fewer fruits and vegetables. So, you know, both experimentally and observationally, the pattern has shown that short sleepers are making less healthy
0: food choices. I love that you said experimentally and observationally, because mm-hmm. when you started with the observation that long sleepers and short sleepers have reduced lifespan, how do you separate the cause and effect there? That is one of the puzzles of, of the
1: field is What's going on with the long sleepers? Why is life expectancy reduced or rather the risk of mortality increased? And most plausible explanation is related to somebody who is needing nine or more hours of sleep or whose body is allowing them to sleep nine or more hours on a regular basis is probably not very healthy. And so there's kind of a selection into that group. The people who sleep for nine or more hours are more likely. Who die due to underlying causes, not due to the sleep. The sleep is probably there to boost them because we know that sleep is you know, excellent for the immune system. I just got my vaccines, by the way, and we know that the vaccine response is boosted. If you're well slept, you're less likely to get infected. These are in experimental studies. If you're fully rested, you know, there's nice evidence that sleep is very good for your immune system. So presumably the long sleepers are a higher risk of mortality because they're already sick.
0: Mm -hmm. But I guess it's easier to test some of the shorter term impacts like food choices and you could just put someone in the sleep lab (laughs) and watch food choices versus the longer term stuff. Absolutely. It's
1: very hard to experimentally deprive you for 10 years. Deprive and monitor them till death. That isn't done. And the other kind of real issue on many of these trials for sleep is that you, you're not blinded on whether or not you were sleep deprived or not. You're aware of whether or not your sleep was (laughs) altered from your normal night of sleep. So, but there are still nice study designs that allow people to be compared to kind of a control state where that their normal sleep duration, and then either a state of sleep restriction or sleep extension, and you can design studies where they're compared to themselves.
0: Right. Yeah. I guess just in general, this speaks to creative study designs and kind of triangulating through different bodies of evidence into what's consistent that comes out across right. across a variety of study designs.
1: Most of my research is non-experimental because I, I like to say I study sleep in the real world or humans in the wild. And uh, at this point, we're doing actigraphic assessment of sleep. So it's, you know, a wearable on the wrist or hip to monitor sleep and physical activity. But we want to see in the real world, how, how does one sleep? and then we collect other information to triangulate the relationships and what we do is we rely on repeated measures from within the same person to allow us to look at on nights when you slept well how right. did you feel the next day and not surprisingly there are links between sleep and mood not surprising at all and then we have you know similar study design going the other way saying well what predicts sleep behaviors and in our study of 15 year olds Caffeine within person uh, on days when they are not consuming caffeine, they go to bed earlier than on nights when they did consume caffeine. So mm-hmm. it's not very surprising, but it's a confirming of what you would expect experimentally. And this is helpful for yeah. developing interventions and understanding what happens in the real world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I My son is 11, but he hangs out sometimes with 13 and 14 year olds. And I'm shocked to see them drinking coffee. Oh, wow fully leaded coffee at yeah. 30. Not my son, thank goodness, not yet. But I can't imagine, I mean, I'm also quite caffeine sensitive, so I can only have like a half-calf beverage in the morning, and I and I know that anything more than that will impact my sleep. And the idea of these teens who are already sort of fighting, having this desire to stay up late and having that fueled by caffeine, it just seems like a recipe for disaster. I agree. That's an easy thing to set boundaries on. The harder challenges
1: are uh, screens. <laughs> It's easy to, to make a rule for your child that they can't do have caffeine after a certain time or maybe ever. But when everybody else is carrying around a smartphone and expecting a response after nine o'clock at night, it's, it's hard to enforce these, these rules as a parent and uh, also for oneself to say, put these screens away. They are alerting to our brain and they have psychological content and cause a physiological response
0: that makes it harder to go to sleep. So that's a great transition moving into solutions and you know sleep hygiene. And first of all, what are some of the biggest problems we need to overcome? And screens are obviously a big part of that, but what are some of the things we can add to our arsenal? Right. So the two most important sleep
1: hygiene tips that are often overlooked, and nobody likes the term sleep hygiene. We use it, but really kind of sleep health behaviors. The sleep health behaviors that we should focus on our regularity, getting to bed and waking up at the same time every day. And that includes weekends. That's really hard to do, but it's important because your body operates on a clock. And if you sleep in late on Sunday morning, it's hard to go to sleep at your weekday bedtime on Sunday night. And so then you end up staying up late on Sunday night, but you still have to wake up to that stinking alarm clock if that's what you're using. And then you start the week off sleep deprived. So Mm -hmm. regularity is extremely important. And especially I'd say for kids, of course, kids are super sleep deprived, teenagers who I'm focusing on. And it's a challenge. The best thing would be to add sleep to all days of the week. But if you can't, they need to make it up somehow. But earlier in the night is better than sleeping in in the morning, is what I would say. So regularity is the number one sleep hygiene tip to go to. The, The second one that is kind of, less commonly discussed is getting bright light in the morning, get outside. That's why we prefer standard sleep researchers prefer a standard time or really permanent standard time, which at least the US just moved to last week, because it shifts the timing of the sun to earlier in the day rather than later in the day. Mm -hmm. And getting that early morning light is alerting and good for your optimal functioning all day. And it allows you to fall asleep earlier at night too. So regularity and early morning light are the number two hygiene tips. The other ones are probably things you already know. Your sleep environment should be cool, dark, and quiet. I mean, those are three big things and you have control over those. Kind of psychologically, you need to feel safe in your environment. That's another big factor. And you should avoid substances, as I've already mentioned, like caffeine, nicotine, Any other substances. And then finally, kind of if we're talking about youth or really adults too, is limit those screens. Try to put them down. Don't make it an essential part of your bedtime routine because, especially, interactive screens are very engaging and it's hard to really shut it off when you're in a conversation or clicking back and forth or playing a video game. And that's going to cut into time that your body should be resting. So the best strategy for that as a parent or family is to try and charge all devices in a central place, not in the bedroom, and get them off sooner than later. I realize it's unrealistic to expect
0: hours in advance, but the sooner you get them off, the better. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask you about specifics on uh, number one, the, the dose of morning light, like will five minutes make a difference? Will one minute make a difference? I don't have an exact answer to that, but I would
1: say try to be outside for five to 10 minutes at a minimum. More is better. More light is better in this case.
0: So in your family, what do you try to at least aim for, you know, most of the time in terms of letting go of the screen before bed or maybe of certain types of screen time before bed? So I am the first to admit I am... Uh,
1: not a perfect parent or a perfect role model for sleep health behavior. But I try to get my, my kids are off the screens, you know, 15 to 30 minutes before bed, come upstairs, brush their teeth, get in bed, snuggle, read, do something like that. No devices in the bedrooms. That's the rule for the children, I have two boys ages eight and 11. In my room, you know, screens are allowed. I even have a television in my room. I don't really watch it that much at night, but I do look at my phone. But I actually try to charge it at a walking distance from my bed. So, you know, I get out of bed and charge it elsewhere. So there's no chance that at one or two in the morning, I wake up and check and see who texted me. Uh, Because that's a thing, you know, like almost a third of both youth and adults report checking their phones in the middle of the night. And that's probably not a good idea because. What type of message are you going to get in the night that's really important? Not not that many. And instead, you just might be sucked in and then have a hard time falling back asleep. So, you know, I could be better. I should probably charge my phone downstairs, but I don't. And the caveat there is I don't really suffer from sleep deprivation. So I would say my, my sleep habits work well for me. But if I did have excessive daytime sleepiness or other issues i might be more attentive
0: to my screen use. I'm curious your your thoughts on blue blocker lenses as a way to still get your screens but not have as much of an impact. Right. So the science there is
1: kind of accurate that we know that exposure to bright light especially blue light suppresses melatonin and melatonin is sleep promoting so you don't you don't want your brain thinking that it's earlier in the day and not release the melatonin. So it makes sense. And yet there's not that many convincing studies that it's it's necessary for regular use. It sort of seems that what we really know is it's not just the light that's interfering with sleep health. It's also the content of the screens, the interactivity of the screens, and just general engagement. So If you're doing something extremely boring and you don't want the light, maybe blue blocker lenses would help. But if you're chatting with a whole group of peers and you're like, oh, but I'm good because I'm wearing blue blocker glasses, you're probably overweighting how important the light is. And and really, it's it's the interaction that's stimulating not only the light. I'd say more research needs to be done on this. But if you really want to reduce the effects of screens on
0: sleep, removing the screens is a better bet, (laughs) more effective. Your answer resonates exactly with my personal experience. I tried it and then I found that I still felt super alert afterwards. And it's because, you know, I'm shopping on Amazon or I'm trying to knock a few things off my to-do list. And then my mind is still humming when I go to bed. Right. Didn't seem to. I love that you're so stimulated by shopping on Amazon. (laughs) I think
1: that's endearing. Oh,
0: man. My life is not as exciting as you might think. It sounds great. (laughs) I also have 11 year old and two seven year olds, almost seven year olds. So yeah, that's, that's my version of excitement. So is there anything else that we didn't cover that maybe people should consider as a possible strategy to improve their sleep? One is uh a, works for some people, at least. Weighted blankets tend to be pretty helpful
1: for youth and for adults, not babies, but for you know no more than 10% of your body weight. But you know, talk to your doctor before you use a device like that. But
0: many people find them helpful and there's some good and emerging science on that. So we're just about out of time here, but there's one more thing that I wanted to touch on before we close. And that comes back to where we started at the beginning. And you mentioned that you feel strongly that sleep deserves more attention because it's a public health issue and even a social justice issue. So can you speak briefly to some of the things that you think could be helpful at a societal level to help us with sleep? The real societal changes that, that are
1: directly linked to sleep health include later school start times, specifically middle and high school start times for teens will really help them be able to respond to their their bodies natural phase delay that occurs during puberty, they're going to be going to bed later anyway. They should not be expected to wake up at 6 a.m. to go to high school. So we need later school start times and the clocks work best for our sleep and our bodies on permanent standard time. So, you know, those are two big policy issues that the sleep community stands behind. Yeah. So if you're in a position to choose a high school, maybe consider the start time. Oh, for sure. As well as the distance, you know, commuting. Calculate exactly what time you would have to wake up to get
0: to school on time. Any resources you would recommend to learn more about sleep and in general and about your work? Sure. I would recommend checking out uh, the National Sleep Foundation's website,
1: the NSF.org, or go to the journal if you're interested in digging into the science, uh, Sleep Health. Full disclosure, I used to be the editor-in-chief and we publish a lot of great science on and if sleep is a public health issue.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hill. It's been a really great learning about this super important but under recognized topic. Excellent. Nice chatting. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye.